Jesus was born, said this. Read this with me. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good news, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will not leave in haste or go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor there any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. 
Let's confess our sins to God. Almighty God, our Maker and Redeemer, we poor sinners flee for refuge to your infinite mercy, seeking and imploring your grace for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. O merciful God, who has given your only begotten Son to die for us, have mercy upon us, and for his sake grant us remission of all our sins. And by your Holy Spirit, increase in us true knowledge of you and of your will and true obedience to your word, to the end that by your grace we may come to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, has had mercy upon us and has given His only Son to die for us. And for Jesus' sake, forgives us all our sins. To those who believe on His name, He gives power to become the children of God and has promised us His Holy Spirit. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Grant this, Lord, unto us all. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory, to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
Let me talk for a few minutes tonight about um, a text which we're not going to read, but which is familiar to uh, most of you, and that is uh, the words of Jesus from the cross in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34, uh, where he says to his father, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsakes Jesus on the cross. That's fundamentally, that's what's happening on the cross. The, the Bible doesn't emphasize, although preachers like to do this, the physical torture that Jesus went through. The Bible instead emphasizes the utter abandonment of Jesus by his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the crowds that were worshiping him a few days before, but most of all, uh, in that moment where he carried the sins of the world on his shoulders by his own father, the one with whom he had infinite and eternal friendship with and relationship with from eternity. The only time in his history that the Trinity is fractured, God turns his back on God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know from Scripture that God does not forsake his people. Scripture's super clear about this. Psalm 37, 25 says this. The psalmist says, I've been young and now I'm old, and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen God abandon the righteous. Isaiah 62 verse 4 says, God says to Israel, you will not be called forsaken. Your land will not be called desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in you. Your name's not going to be forsaken. Your name is going to be I delight in you. Hebrews 13.5, the preacher of Hebrews says, uh, quoting one of the Psalms, he says, I will, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God says to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. God does not forsake his people. But God does forsake those who are not his people. Paul describes hell in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where he says this, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Away from the presence of the Lord. This is what hell is, is being abandoned by God. This is what Jesus experiences on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's troubling to talk about hell. It's, I know it is. The Bible insists, though, that this is not something that unbelievers are opposed to. In fact, to not be a believer means to not want to be with God, to reject God. Paul describes unbelievers in Romans 1.21 where he says, For all they, although they knew God, God is apparent, his existence is apparent from creation around us. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Hell is God abandoning people, but that only happens because they don't want him in the first place. Hell, talking about hell, it's always uncomfortable. It's one of the main reasons, this is why it's uncomfortable, is because it's one of the main reasons why unbelievers have a problem with Christianity. This notion that God is someday going to torture the people who aren't on his side, that God is like going to stick them in this firebox and watch them burn for his own pleasure. But if hell is being forsaken by God, 
and this is what we want naturally as humans, to not be connected to God, then those who reject Jesus aren't being tortured. Instead, he's just giving them what they want. And this is one of the things that the Bible has to teach us about hell, is that actually the people in hell don't want to be out of hell. Now, I know that that sounds crazy, but listen to what I say. In just a few, listen to what I say for just the next few minutes. And I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis a couple times. If you are given a choice between hell, let's say that you don't want God, and you're given a choice between an eternity without God, and I should say right off the bat that we don't know what hell is like. There's lots of imagery in the Bible. There's fire imagery, of course. That's the one that, that, that's most noticeable. There's also darkness imagery. There's, of course, abandonment imagery. We've talked about that. At one point, it's described as an infinite decomposition, our bodies decomposing and decomposing, and the worm doesn't die. We don't really know exactly what, it, what the details are like. All we know is that it's godless. That's the most clear thing about hell is that it's godless. God abandons people who've abandoned him. If you have a choice, if an unbeliever has a choice between hell and an eternal worship service, what do you take? If the choice is between hell and an eternal worship service, what would you choose? See, the notion that people who are, are, who are in hell want out so that they can go to a church service that lasts forever? They've never wanted a church service that lasts for even a few minutes. How does this suddenly change? In fact, in the Bible, we have one story we have of somebody in hell is the story of Lazarus. Have you ever noticed about Lazarus in hell? That he says he never one time asks, can I get out? He never one time asks. He says, can you send some water down here? But he never wants to be released. People choose hell. Let me give you some quotes uh, by C.S. Lewis. In the end, he says there are only two types of people. C.S. Lewis says this about humans. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. People don't want God. How is this suddenly supposed to change at the end of all time? People will not suddenly choose to want to become worshipers of God. They will be confirmed forever in what they want. Have you ever been depressed? Have you really depressed? Have you ever struggled with depression? I imagine that the choice is some, some, somewhat like this. If it, when I've struggled with depression before, I, I found myself not wanting to get out of bed, but not wanting to stay in bed either. Not wanting to eat food, but not wanting to not eat. I don't want to go outside, but I don't want to stay inside. I don't want to be by myself, but I don't want to be around people. That sort of notion that there's no place where I, where I belong, there's no place where I will be comfortable, is one of the hallmarks of depression. I imagine the experience of those in hell is like this. They don't want to be in hell. A life without God is miserable, even for unbelievers. The Bible is clear that every good gift comes from God. Even unbelievers benefit from God's love and grace. But they don't want to be in an eternal worship service either. They've spent their life, entire life trying to avoid that kind of nonsense. C.S. Lewis, I'm not going to quote from this book, but C.S. Lewis wrote a fantastic fictional book, a novel about this choice. It's called The Great Divorce. And in The Great Divorce, 
people in hell are given a bus trip. They're allowed to, maybe once a month, to pile onto a bus and take the bus trip out of hell up to heaven where they are given the choice. Do you want to come in or do you want to go back to hell? And almost universally, all those people want to go back to hell because the choices that they would have to make to be a God person are much more damaging in their own mind to being, to being able to enjoy for eternity their own self-will, but to do it in a place where God doesn't exist. And they live in infinite depression, in infinite pain, in infinite loneliness, in infinite abandonment. To give up your own self-sovereignty, I'm in charge of myself, to belong to somebody who gets to call the shots is too big a pill for many unbelievers to swallow. If hell is being forsaken by God, it's exactly what people choose because they've spent their entire life trying to run from just that person. Another quote by C.S. Lewis from The Problem of Pain, he says this, I willingly believe that the damned, those in hell, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful. Rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. We like to imagine that hell is locked on the outside and people are trying to get out and God's saying, no, I'm going to watch you torture, be tortured forever. But actually, Lewis says, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Those in there wouldn't get out if they could choose to get out. Because to get out would mean to be to turn oneself over to God, a fate that's worse than hell for those who hate God. C.S. Lewis says these people enjoy forever the horrible freedom they've spent their life demanding and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed, forever submitting to obedience, become through all eternity more and more free. No, hell is not God torturing people. It's God forsaking the people who have already forsaken him and would never want to turn to him in the first place. And this is the most horrible of all existences. An existence without God. What Jesus experiences on the cross, being utterly abandoned, being utterly alone in the universe, being completely surrounded by darkness, by depression, by pain, by the blackness that is the lack of hope. That's what hell is. For me and you, though, who believe in Jesus, he experiences this for us so that we don't have to. We all know what it's like on a micro level to be abandoned or to experience what I've described when I've experienced the depression of not wanting to get out of bed but not wanting to stay in bed either. We've all experienced that. But none of us have experienced infinite depression. None of us have been completely abandoned by every living thing in the universe. And yet Jesus did that for us so that we would never be alone. Jesus experienced infinite depression for us so that we could have infinite hope. Jesus experienced death, utter death, infinite death for us so that we could have life. And Jesus' experience of hell is utterly unique. No one else in the history of the universe has ever genuinely uttered the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For those of us who are in Jesus, we can never be forsaken by God, and so we will never pray the prayer, why, why God, why have you forsaken me? For those outside of Jesus, they could never pray the prayer, my God, because he's not their God, and they would not want him to be a God. They've chosen their gods, whether as good Americans, it's self-sovereignty, and I call my own shots, or whether it's pleasure, or whether it's power, independence, whatever it is. The prayer, my God, can never 
honestly come off their lips. And so for one moment, right in the center of history, the one true man standing in the pit of hell itself utters the impossible prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he does that for us. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this unbelievably deep and impossible and mysterious and infinitely loving, infinitely righteous plan to rescue those of us who've turned and ran for you by experiencing hell for us. In our natural state, hell is what we would choose. We don't want you. We want to run from you. And yet you've shaped and molded our hearts to be lovers of you. Imperfectly, of course, we still hide from you frequently. We still want our own way frequently. We still want to be many gods, many goddesses frequently. And yet you've begun to open our eyes to the power of your Holy Spirit and by the power of the blood of your Son, Jesus. You've begun to open our eyes to the loving God that you are and you have turned our hearts to you. Lord, in your mercy, God, keep on shaping and molding our hearts so that we long to turn to you, so that we would never want to be forsaken by you. At whatever cost, the, the, the loss of whatever freedom and sovereignty we imagine that we have, that we would always find a deeper freedom and a deeper self-control and a deeper sovereignty inside the infinite freedom and self-control and sovereignty that is the power of you, the Trinity. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we come to you tonight uh, thinking once again about the depths to which your Son stooped to rescue us from our sins, to rescue this creation from its brokenness. And all we can do is praise you for that and acknowledge that our freedom to come into your throne room as your children is only due to the blood that he shed. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. This is the Passion reading from John. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, 
Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and she brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also aren't one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself outside, and so they said to him, 
you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it again and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves didn't enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Thank you. 
Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. 
So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather write, this man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 